This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Anne. Welcome back to Safe Space Radio for Courageous Conversations. Today we're beginning a new series on child abuse. Child abuse is far more common than we would like to believe. In fact, according to the Atlantic Monthly, child sexual abuse impacts more Americans annually than cancer, AIDS, gun violence, LGBT inequality, and the mortgage crisis combined. I almost want to say that again because it's so hard to take in. Child abuse, child sexual abuse, impacts more Americans annually than cancer, AIDS, gun violence, lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender inequality, and the mortgage crisis combined. In fact, one in three to four girls and one in five to seven boys are sexually abused before they turn 18. The consequences of child abuse, especially when it cannot be talked about or acknowledged, can be long-lasting. Child abuse not only affects people's mental health, something that makes intuitive sense to most of us, but it also affects people's physical health. Today and next week, I will be talking with Dr. Vincent Felitti about his work demonstrating the far-reaching impact of painful childhood experiences on the rest of life. Dr. Vincent Felitti is an internist who founded the Department of Preventative Medicine at Kaiser Permanente in San Diego, where he's worked since 1968. He is clinical professor of medicine at the University of California. He worked with colleagues at the Centers for Disease Control to design a study of over 17,000 individuals to look at the long-term impact of adverse childhood experiences. We call those ACEs, adverse childhood experiences. But before he did this, he ran a large obesity treatment program that was extremely effective in helping people lose large amounts of weight. But then they began discovering some very unexpected and even taboo results about the reasons why people could not keep that weight off. Welcome to Safe Space, Dr. Felitti. Why, thank you. I'm delighted to be here. I understand that by listening to your patients, your obese patients, you came to understand that the causes of obesity are really different than what probably most of us imagine. But before this, before your patients became your teachers, I gather that your program looked much the same as any other obesity treatment program in this country, and maybe even in the world, with nutrition counseling and exercise programming. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) That's what you do when you don't know what to do. And indeed, we began doing that. But yes, but we also were working with a new technology at the time. This would have been in the early 80s, maybe 84 or so. We were working with the technology of supplemented absolute fasting. People stop eating all food completely, I mean everything, for prolonged periods of time. And uh, you have to drink a supplement to keep from dying when you do that. So we were doing that, and we were, we were taking people successfully and safely down about 300 pounds a year. And, um, I mean, we thought, my God, you know, we, we must really know what we're doing. I mean, look at the results. Right. So then, this is without surgery. This was, this no, was just... absolutely no surgery. This is, this is simply stopping eating totally all food and, you know, all caloric beverages, drinking the supplement, which is essential, and losing weight at you know, roughly the, the rate of about 300 pounds a year. And just before we get into, you know, what you ended up finding out, to not eat anything except this little drink that has potassium and magnesium in it, I mean, how did you help people resist what must have been rather significant hunger? 
basically that's not a critical issue. I mean, that's not where the difficulties lie. There turn out to be some major difficulties, but not where one would expect. I gather the major difficulties were people's discomfort in actually being thin. But tell me what happened. Tell me how you began to discover that. Well, in in 1985, a 28-year-old woman comes in. She weighs 408 pounds, and she asks us if we can help her with her problem. And our first mistake was in accepting her diagnosis of what the problem was. We assumed the problem was weighing 408 pounds, and so we said, sure. And in 51 weeks, took her from 408 to 132. And, I mean, you know, we have photographs of her dramatic difference, my God. And uh, we were pretty pleased. You know, we, we obviously must know what we're doing. Look at the results. And she rather quickly demonstrated to us we had no idea what we were doing. We merely were in possession of a powerful technology. After staying at that weight, that 132 pounds, for about five weeks, she then abruptly regained 37 pounds in three weeks, which I would not previously have believed to be physiologically possible. And I remember asking her what was going on. And she said, I think I'm sleep eating. And I responded, what? <laughs> and she said, well, when I was a kid, I used to be a sleep eater, a, a sleep walker. I haven't done that for years. But I live alone, and when I go to bed at night, everything is clean and put away in the kitchen. I wake up in the morning, boxes and cans are open, pots and dishes are dirty. It's obvious somebody's been cooking and eating there. I'm the only person there. I'm gaining weight. It's the only thing I can think of, but I have absolutely no recollection of any of this. Okay, well, I've never heard of it, but no it certainly had, certainly had a force of logic to it. And, and I asked her, but why now? Why do you think this is happening now? You know, why not six months ago? Why not a year from now? Why now? I don't know. Yeah, okay, but what do you think? I don't know. Okay, but what do you think? Why Why now? I don't know. Yeah, you said that. Uh, why do you think it's now? And on the fourth pass, she stumbled and said, well, actually, there was this man at work. He was a much older man. He was married. And he said to me, hey, Patty, you look pretty good. You lost all that weight. How about you and me making it every week? And that was the day the sleep eating began. And I remember thinking, well, that's pretty pretty gross and clumsy proposition, but, you know, I mean, this is 1986. It is Southern California. It's kind of an extreme response. Why the extreme response? And in pursuing why the extreme response, out comes a lengthy incest history with her grandfather. And I remembered thinking to myself, my God, <clears throat> this is the second incest case I've seen in 23 years of practice. Well, I didn't know what to do with the information, so didn't discuss it at all, um, and um, she disappeared. She got back over 400 pounds faster than she had lost the weight and then disappeared for 12 years before she showed up again. And then about 10 days later, by accident, although perhaps with some priming from you know what I had learned from her, I run into a second incest case, and I remember thinking, well, you know, I've been seeing them once every 11 years on average, I'm not likely starting the third 11-year cycle within 10 days. 
and so I probed into things more with this patient, and the um, same, same history shows up and starts me thinking, you know, none of us ever ask questions like this. Maybe we better start doing that. As a matter of fact, the single most productive question that one can ask in understanding obesity in any given individual is how old were you when you first began putting on weight? Because whatever the explanation that you want to propose, you know, oh, it's genetic, you know, my metabolism is ruined, etc. Whatever the explanation you want to pick obviously had to be then or before, so it markedly narrows things down. The number of times that coincides with parental divorce is really quite remarkable once once one starts looking routinely. And do you understand that because there was so much conflict in the house, or do you understand that because there was effectively a loss of a parent? I, I think both, but more than simply a loss of a parent, loss of a parent under conditions of hostility, of of refusal of further contact, uh, uh, situations where one might think that one oneself is the cause of that loss. You know, maybe if I were a better kid, my yeah. mother or my father would still be here, etc. I started asking people how old they were when they first became sexually active. And the first one I asked, I remember, started crying and and. I misspoke myself, actually. I Instead of asking how old she was, I asked how much she weighed when she first became sexually active, and she said 40 pounds, and then sobbed it was with my father. So that was what prompted me to start asking routinely about sexual abuse with all of our patients, and I was absolutely floored by the number of yes answers. I, I found this difficult to believe initially because I remember thinking, you know, I mean, if this were true, you know, people would know. Somebody would have told me, wasn't that what medical school was for? And 186 patients later, it seemed that I was getting yes answers from every other person I was asking, men and women. Yeah, I thought, this is, you know, this is probably real. But I, I still had some residual doubt thinking, well, you know, maybe... Maybe there's just something I don't understand. So I got five other people to interview the next 100 patients, and they turned up the same thing. When you, when you say every other patient, I mean, are you literally meaning almost 50% of people with that severe obesity had a history of sexual abuse? Yes. Yes. Right, so that's a mind-boggling and, and, result. And, and, and when we got through... 286 patients, it wasn't every other patient, it was 55%. More prevalent amongst the women than the men, but, you know, nevertheless, for the whole group, it was 55%. Are these the people who gained, who lost a lot of weight and started gaining it back, or are these just the people upon so entry these are to... these people the... coming into the weight program. The next 286 consecutive people coming into the weight program, I interviewed, and this is what we learned. Okay, so there you are, kind of blown away, literally. Like, so I pre- I'm invited to to speak at a national obesity meeting in Atlanta in 1990, and I present this, and I'm wildly attacked by the audience. <laughs> Some guy gets up, and under the guise of asking a question, 
pronounces. You you need to know, Dr. Felitti, that that those of us who are more familiar with these matters recognize that these statements by patients are largely fabrications to provide a cover explanation for failed lives. And I remember, this is a big audience, this is about 700 people, and I remember standing on the stage thinking, wow, you know, I've really changed because there would have been a time I'd have been terrified if that had happened to me. And now I'm standing there thinking, do I tell this wretch what I think of him or just let it slide? So and he's blaming, he's basically blaming the victim. He's right. basically saying, exactly. These, you know, this story of they're abuse, lying. they're lying and it's an excuse. Yes. I decided not to, not, not to start a riot and, and let it slide. I, I think that what you are saying is such a radical re-understanding of how we understand obesity and about what can help oh, with it, that with, I want to come with, back to that. With, without question, yes. Yeah, what? so so what you were basically saying is that ob- oh, at the heart of obesity is a history of abuse. I mean, just to well, put it bluntly. Let me put it a different way. I, I would phrase it this way, that obesity is indeed not the problem. Obesity is someone's unconsciously chosen solution to problems that exist that we know nothing about. Well, and when you say a solution, how is it a solution? Okay, there are two, two core issues with obesity. One is the use of food for its psychoactive benefits. And what do you mean by that? Sit down, have something to eat, you'll feel better. No one asks you, you know, when did you eat last? It's like giving somebody a cigarette. You know, sit down, have a smoke, relax. Nobody asks you, when did you have your last cigarette? Or, you know, sit down, have a drink, relax. No one asks you when you had your last drink. I mean, the stuff works. So it's comfort food, effectively. Absolutely. Or, or another way of saying it is almost a form of anesthesia, a way to a- not absolutely. feel. And we have painted on the wall in our obesity program building the statement, it's hard to get enough of something that almost works. The next mouthful is going to get me there. Okay? Or the next drink. Or the next cigarette. Or the next man or the next woman, or the next dose of whatever I'm buying on the street. So if I'm using food to comfort myself, Mm -hmm. it almost works. Mm -hmm. And so I keep chasing and chasing that -hmm. that comfort that's almost there, but not quite. Mm -hmm. So you said there were two ways that it was a solution. the, The other big piece is the aspect of obesity that is good for you. You know, but isn't it bad for you? Yeah, absolutely. You know, you die faster and so forth. Yeah, sure. But on the other hand, you have to remember that not everybody is interested in serving out a full life sentence. The aspects of obesity that are good for you, I mean, if you need to desex yourself, gaining 100 pounds works pretty well. Not as good as 200 pounds, but, you know, it's a good step in the right direction. And when you say desex yourself, so immediately the story of the woman that you started with comes to mind. For another one, uh, another memorable case, I'm talking with this lady, uh, and we're going through her life. You know, what'd you weigh when you were born? What'd you weigh in kindergarten? What'd you weigh in sixth grade? And if you don't remember exactly, with the skinniest kid in class, the fattest kid, ordinary size, what did you weigh when you began to menstruate, etc.? And we get to age 23, and she tells me that at 23 she was raped 
and in the year subsequent gained 105 pounds. Whereupon she looks down at the carpet and mutters, overweight is overlooked, and that's the way I need to be. And I remembered thinking, wow, what an extraordinary insight. So again, that was the beginning of a new of a new understanding of things, the benefits of being fat. Isn't it bad for you? Absolutely. I'm talking about the opposite of that, that it's good for you. Similar example, again, in the middle to late 80s, we had two men in the program who were guards at the state penitentiary downtown. They each lost between 100 and 150 pounds apiece. They made no bones about it. They did not feel comfortable walking into the prison regular size. They felt a lot better going in there looking big as a refrigerator. And you think of our expression, throwing your weight around. So they felt physically stronger and kind of more tough and intimidating mm -hmm. by having so much more weight. Mm -hmm. You mentioned in, in some of your articles, you mentioned a third reason, which is social. Tell me about that. Yeah, yeah that, that was interesting. That was, that was the, the last one that we stumbled into. It, it reduces social expectations. You know, you, you may hang around with with people who expect a lot from you and that's not troubling to you, but you know, there are people who, who are troubled by having demands put on them. And you know, if you weigh 300 or 400 pounds, people will assume that you're not very capable, et cetera. This is, this is uh, uh, sometimes for some people a big issue. The most common ones are the use of food for its psychoactive benefits, for its calming benefits and then the use of obesity to desex oneself or to um, you know look bigger than life I'm the biggest guy on the cell block etc and then the third category reducing social expectations so now that you know this now that you know that fundamentally obesity is an unconscious as i understand it an unconsciously chosen solution to the problem of of feeling sexually vulnerable in the world, and in some ways feeling vulnerable in the world. How did that change the treatment program? I mean, what did you do? Well, it totally changed the treatment program, and that was an interesting experience in its own right as well. So it was, I guess, the late 80s we realized that, you know, that what we were doing was largely irrelevant, that we had a powerful tool that, that we only were beginning to understand, and that our efforts needed to be focused not on how much somebody weighed, but on why they weighed that much and what the benefits of weighing that much might be. And so we totally redesigned the program. We got one of the counselors to agree that we would uh, videotape her group of about 15 people with whom she was meeting once a week for two hours a week. The program was then 26 weeks long, and um, a group of five of us met every week to review this two-hour videotape. And, you know, we were five intelligent, well-intentioned people who really didn't know where we needed to go, except that we were pretty convinced that we needed to be somewhere different. So we would look at the videotapes, and it would be pretty obvious, well, this this is a waste of time, what, what we're doing here. Oh, or, or, oh, this is good, but it's in the wrong place. You know, it needs
needs to be much earlier, much later in the program, et cetera. And so, and so we rebuilt the program that way. And then when we rebuilt the program, we videotaped the new, the group using the new program, et cetera. And we did that through five 26-week cycles. This was almost three years of weekly meetings reviewing in, in three-hour sessions these two-hour videotapes. And we ended up with a radically different program that we're you know, really rather rather proud of. And the whole program was focused on addressing the underlying reasons why people had become obese, not the obesity itself. And when you say the un, you know addressing those reasons, I mean, sure. did, did that mean that you were helping people feel safe in the world, even though they would catch others' sexual attention? Well, that that indeed was the focus of the program. And how did you help people do that? I mean, if you have someone who's been incested for years, sure, and is and really threatened by a man's sexual interest, how do you help her or him feel safer in the world? Speaking openly about it in small groups and small constant groups, and and realizing that they're still acceptable, the idea of asking and listening and implicitly accepting turns out to be a remarkably powerful form of doing. It took us, you know, many years to realize this. So that the act of someone asking the question, listening in a non-judgmental, accepting fashion, presumably hearing other people who had very similar mm -hmm. kinds of stories, Absolutely. realizing I'm not alone, this made a radical difference. And did you find that people who you might have predicted would have not been able to keep the weight off were therefore able to keep it off? It radically changed our dropout rate in the program. Okay, it changed our dropout rate from 55%. I mean, initially, before we were doing any of this, 55% of the people dropped out. And interestingly, they were people who were specifically losing weight. Those who were eating on the side and lying about it were very happy to pay a lot of money to be in the program <laughs> and stay in it, near as we could tell, accomplishing nothing. Later, we saw that you know what we were doing was quite important. We we were providing social acceptance to them. Now, um, I understand that the people at the highest risk of of regaining the weight were either people who had a childhood history of sexual abuse or people who were currently married to an active alcoholic. Correct. And what did you find you could do? So, for the people married to the alcoholic, obviously, there's not much you can change about that except you know, whether to leave or, you know, they, they're not in so much control of that. But for the people who, who were regaining weight who did have the history of child abuse, was that all it took or did you, did you refer them to psychotherapy? We, we did not. Tell me and about we, that decision. And, and we, we didn't, not because we didn't believe in it. We didn't because American psychiatry largely has moved into a so-called biomedical model, you know, where the main approach is, is medication-dependent, and you know, medications are enormously useful, but alone they are often quite insufficient. And so we realized that what we were doing in terms of helping people speak openly about these things 
um, or write about them in, in the course of you know detailed autobiographical writing or enact some of them. We, cre- we created a number of theater groups, so-called. We hired several actors and actresses to help patients do little enactments uh, of what they were talking about. And um, you know, that, that combination of things, all variations on the theme of being able to tell other people in a supportive setting what had happened and finding that you were still accepted. And so the people that you might have predicted would would have relapsed or you know gained the weight back when they weren't able to reenact these stories and to feel understood and accepted. Did the people that you would have predicted to relapse did they in fact not not drop out and not relapse? The the, the best measure of that was that our dropout rate dropped from fifty five percent to twenty two percent. So you halved it. Yeah. So more than, more than half it, yeah. What I'm struck by, you know, I think about Michelle Obama's campaign to get kids moving and to reduce childhood obesity, and what I'm sensing from you is that it's missing the boat. If it's not addressing... Well, for, for for a lot of people, it will be missing the boat. You know, the advantage she has, she's an enormously bright woman. She's a, a pleasant and kindly person. You know, she has the clout of being the wife of the president of the United States, my God. So, so you know, the, the kids that someone like that, that have someone like that paying attention to them, that, that's an enormously powerful tool. So I suspect that that really works greatly to her, to her advantage. But if, if one asks, do I think the teaching people how to eat right? No, that's a waste of time. That's basically, you know, that's... <laughs> That's what you do when you don't know what to do. No one, no one gets fat because they're ignorant. This, you know, the woman who was raped at 23 didn't gain 105 pounds in the year subsequent because she suddenly forgot everything that she knew about how to be slender. It feels like almost you couldn't reiterate that point enough, Vincent, because we, in our culture, the moralistic judgment and prejudice against people who are heavy is profound. I mean, I think I, I've interviewed uh, women of substance, as some of them have told me to call them, and they'll say that the prejudice about their weight is a much is the most painful thing in their lives and far more difficult to live with than the health consequences sure. of the weight. Sure. And do you feel that the, the obesity treatment community is hearing this? Is there resistance to hearing by, you? By and large, no. I mean, the Kaiser Permanente is an enormous medical care system. We have 9 million members, largely in Western states. So you would think this would spread through the system like wildfire. Uh, it assuredly has not. Everyone comes from, you know, different parts of the country, Kaiser Permanentes, to see what these guys are doing in San Diego. You know, they're not sending nearly as many people into bariatric surgery as we are in Los Angeles or San Francisco or or Hawaii. Um, and then they go home and leave out key pieces of what we're doing and then tell, no, we tried it and it doesn't work, etc. So we're talking about the resistance to really naming how absolutely. widespread child abuse is. Yeah, absolutely. So on this note, we're going to end this week's show. We will be doing part two of this interview, talking more about child abuse 
and the impact on our physical health. Dr. Vincent Felitti, thank you so much for being my guest. My pleasure. I've been talking to Dr. Vincent Felitti about his work and research with obese people and learning from them about the relationship between child abuse, specifically sexual abuse, and the actual advantages of being obese. If you'd like to learn more about this work, you can actually come and hear Dr. Vincent Felitti speak in person on Friday, April 19th at the Marriott Sable Oaks as part of the annual meeting of the Maine Association of Psychiatric Physicians. If you'd like to learn more about that, go to our website. That's MAPP, or the Maine Association of Psychiatric Physicians, and you can get the registration form there to come and hear Dr. Vincent Felitti speaking about adverse childhood experiences and obesity and addictions as ways of coping with painful life experiences. If you cannot come to the day with Dr. Felitti here in South Portland, Maine, you can go to the safespaceradio.com website and you can click on a link that I'm going to post an article that he wrote about obesity and adverse childhood experiences. So if you didn't get to hear this interview in its entirety and you'd like to, or if you want to email it to a friend, please go to that website, safespaceradio.com, and you will get that link. You can also download us from iTunes. You can like us on Facebook. And on the website, you can sign up to get a weekly email with a link to that show. My thanks today to Jen Hodston for mixing the sound and Maurice Lennon for the music and Jim Russell for being my consultant. Coming up next is Speak Freely.